Our topic for this evening is Yitzchak Rabin. Uh, I figured the uh, 50th anniversary of the uh, Six Day War, which is uh, started, started this June 5th, today is June 6th. I figure it's a worthy topic. Also, we'll do Bernard Revel next week. And the other factor is that the title of this course was Heroes and Villains of Modern Jewish History. And if there was ever one person who paid the ultimate price for having been called a villain, despite the fact that others regarded him as a hero, it's Yitzchak Rabin. So, the story begins with his birth in 1922 in Jerusalem. But don't, but don't let it fool you, he didn't live in Jerusalem. His family lived in Tel Aviv. Actually, before his birth, his parents, Rosa Cohen and Nehemia Rabin, lived up in the north, in the Galilee. But they wanted him to be born in Jerusalem. So, when she was nine months pregnant, she went to Jerusalem. In his childhood... Was gro- he the first Sabra prime minister? Yes. Uh, he, well, before him, uh, Ben-Gurion was born in Russia. Uh, Levi, uh, Moshe Sharet was born in Russia. Levi Eshkol was born in Russia. Golda Meir was born in Russia. Yeah. So? <laughs> so? Um, so he, he grew up in Tel Aviv, but his parents were never home. That was, uh, he had, did, did not have a great relationship with his mother. She was a dev- uh, devoted communal activist, served on the Tel Aviv City Council. She was a, f- uh, a real partisan in the struggle for Zionism. But that meant that she didn't have time to take care of her children. She had a son, Yitzchak, and a younger uh, daughter. So... She died, actually, at the age of 47 in 1937 when Yitzhak was 15 years old. So he, he, he suffered a little bit psychologically from the fact that he didn't have a good relationship with his parents. His father lived a much longer life, actually uh, lived to see him be prime minister in the 1970s. Um, he goes to the Beit Chinuch Liyaldei Ovdim, which means what? Workman's Circle. Uh, Beit Chinuch, it's like Beit Sefer, it's a school, the Yaldei Ovdim, for the children of workers. Now, everybody works for a living. But every, when you say you're a worker, what does that even mean? It means you're a kami. I mean, I mean, no, it doesn't mean that. It means you have far left sympathies. And so, yes, his mother and his father, but primarily his mother, was to the far left of the political spectrum. His father, I believe, worked in the, for the, uh, the electric company, the Palestine Electric Company. And after that, he went to Kibbutz Givat HaShlosha, which was uh, like middle school, which was founded by his mother. And after that, he went to the Kaduri Agricultural School up in the north. Uh, he went there in 1937 and would graduate there in 1940. He wasn't the best student ac- academically, but he was driven to succeed. He was quiet, didn't talk much, but um, people could tell from an early age that he had talent. He was special, he was going to become something. 1941, he um, is inducted into the Palmach. His hero, and someone who was only four years older than him and a few years ahead of him in the Kaduri school, was, y- was Yigal Alon. Yigal Alon was the commander of the Palmach, and eventually Yitzchak Rabin will rise to be his, the deputy commander. But that's already a few years ahead in 1945, going towards the independence war. And Yitzchak Rabin participated in uh, 
the one action of the Palmach that was authorized by the British. The British were concerned that the Nazis might take over Palestine, and for that matter, Nazi sympathizing governments might take over the whole Middle East, and so they went into southern Lebanon to disrupt communications equipment, and Rabin was on that mission. The only famous thing that happened on that mission was that Moshe Dayan lost an eye. Um, Okay, so he stays in the Palmach. He had opportunities to go study abroad. And he was thinking of not having a career in the military. After all, the state doesn't exist yet. You know, it's just the, the yeshuv. Who's to say what will happen? Um, so Rabin wanted to become an irrigation engineer. Irrigation engineer to make the desert bloom. He had an opportunity to go on a scholarship to Berkeley, of all places. And he really wanted to go. But time and again, in the early ni- to mid-1940s, it just it slipped through his hands. Reasons of the defense of the yeshuv prevented him from going anywhere. He felt committed to the safety of his people, and he wasn't going to abandon them for uh, scholastic uh, opportunities in America. But, he, but he, he heard of the promise of America, the wonders of America, from his father. His father, who was born in 1886, and at the age of 18 in 1904, had moved to America and lived in America until 1917 when he made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. So Nehemiah Rabin had this positive feel about America, despite being a socialist, he nonetheless had these favorable sentiments towards capitalist America. And Yitzchak, he bounced around, but was in New York primarily. Um, So Yitzchak Rabin, for the rest of his life, would have a, a positive opinion of the United States and want to go there. And he will go there for a long stretch after his military career is over. Okay, so he's rising through the ranks of the Palmach, which is not good, because then you get arrested. Uh, after the 1945-1946 uh, season of the United Hebrew Resistance Movement, in which the Haganah and the Irgun Lechi cooperated on various attacks on British installations, so the British had enough, and they arrested everyone on the Black Sabbath in June of 1946. Everybody goes to jail, except for David Ben-Gurion, who was out of the country. Um, but all the heavy hitters go to jail, including Yitzchak Rabin as the deputy commander of the Palmach. He's in jail for five months. Didn't they send a whole bunch of them to some island? Or so some of them were sent to Eritrea. Uh, Yitzchak Shamir spent almost a year uh, in the jungles of Africa. Rabin was locally in, in Palestine, but he was in jail for five months. Uh, let's now move ahead towards the uh, independence war. So, did, did Rabin have any formal no, and which which is why he will, his career will be derailed temporarily in the 1950s. So his training is with the Yishuv paramilitary organizations, not with an o- official fighting force of some sovereign state. During World War II, many thousands of Yishuv young men did volunteer for the British Army, including the likes of Ezer Weizmann, Chaim Herzog, big names who, who, who volunteered to fight for the British. But Rabin didn't. He stayed with the Palmach. And that would be a fissure between those who had formal training in the, under the British and those who only had uh, paramilitary training uh, under their own flag, so to speak. Okay. 1948... Rabin is involved in several of the important battles of the war. The first um, of significance happens as statehood is being declared. On May 14th, um, 
which was a Friday, Erev Shabbos, in Tel Aviv at the museum, so all the political heavyweights were there uh, in their finery, uh, banging the gavel and singing Hatikva and declaring statehood. Where was Yitzhak Rabin? In a foxhole on the outskirts of Jerusalem trying to save the city from destruction. And he would reminisce years later in interviews that he didn't have time to think, would there be a state, would it survive, would it not? He couldn't care less, he just wanted to save Jerusalem and the lives of the people. So that was the only consideration on his mind, the, the, the defense of Yerushalayim, uh, fighting with the Harel Brigade. So the most controversial incident happens around May 19, May 20, when the old city is largely in Jordanian hands, but the Jewish quarter is still being held onto by some limited number of Jewish fighters, mostly not Haganah, but Irgun and Lehi, and, and just local residents. They're not going to survive much longer. They can't hold out. They're running out of ammunition. They're running out of manpower. They need assistance, desperately. And so the Palmach is instructed to break through to the Zion Gate. Rabin is not so happy about this because he thinks it's a fool's errand, that they're not going to win. But orders are orders, so he ends up uh, providing assistance relief for another unit that was already there from Mount Zion. They go through Zion Gate and they take a portion of the Jewish quarter. But, r- tired, running low on supplies, they withdraw. They withdraw back to Mount Zion. And then they're told, no, no, you have to go back and reconquer it. And this is a sad aspect of Israeli military history, that sometimes you take an objective and then you give it up for whatever reason temporarily, and then you have to try to take it again and it's just another, another disastrous fight. So, the second and third attempts at taking the Jewish quarter via uh, Zion Gate failed, and many people died. And Rabin, for the rest of his life, would feel guilty over the, the, uh, the bloodshed, the loss of life, in trying to break through. But wait a second. How could he worry about the lives of soldiers when we're talking about the old city of Jerusalem and, the, and, the, and also the 1,300 civilians, Jewish civilians who were living in the Jewish quarter? What about them? Answer, and this is very important in the life of Yitzhak Rabin, he, as a soldier, cared for his men. And, and sometimes his concern for his soldiers would be paramount over political, even very serious, deep political considerations and the fate of a certain civilian population. That, yes, for others who were making decisions, the old city is paramount, and the, the civilian population, we have to save them. But for Robin, if it's a, a, a foolish mission that can't succeed, you don't do it. Okay, that was uh, one uh, early part of the the war in which he was involved. The second is Latrun, which is a similar situation, and an almost impossible task to defeat, to dislodge the Jordanian Arab Legion from the heights commanding the Tel Aviv to Jerusalem road uh, with insufficient munitions and soldiers who are not really soldiers. Who were these people? They were Holocaust survivors, a lot of them, right off the boat. Okay, They didn't have training. They didn't have uh, the, the, the requisite weapons. They were barely knew how to hold a rifle. Ariel Sharon would almost lose his life in, in this battle as a young soldier. And Rabin was involved and very much did not want to fight this battle because it was a lost cause. And he was told by Ben-Gurion, you do it. And it was unsuccessful. Ultimately, of course, how did Jerusalem uh, 
receive its supplies. If the attack on Latrun failed, the Burma Road. The Burma Road was created uh, snaking its way through the Judean hills into the Jerusalem corridor to the south of where the original road was, and that's how just before the ceasefire, uh, supplies, food, and water was able to make its way from the coastal plain to Jerusalem. Okay, the next significant part of the war, which, in which we see Yitzhak Rabin, is something we discussed when we dealt with Menachem Begin, and that is the shelling of the Altalena. So, Rabin once again finds himself a historic uh, moment. Uh, he is at the beach in Tel Aviv, and together with his commander, uh, Yigal Alon, is now instructed to fire upon the Altalena. And we've discussed this incident before, Sadly, Jews die on both sides. It's a tragic episode. For Ben-Gurion, it was a high point in his career, at least as he would put it, because he said, you know, Israeli sovereignty of statehood was, was established, that there are no more underground organizations, uh, and that you, can't, you can only have one military and one government, not a breakaway military and a breakaway government. That was Ben-Gurion's approach. But in the meantime, guys like Robin had to, to shoot other Jews. Not a pretty sight. But also, the very idea of there being one military and one government... Um, at the expense of the Irgun and Lehi is something that's also going to be at the expense, expense eventually of the Palmach. So Rabin will get a taste of his own medicine about six months later. But the war continues. Rabin is involved in Operation Danny, which was the conquest of Ramla and Lod to clear away the center of the country and get the airport, which led to the Arab refugee crisis in small measure. Uh, then, after the next ceasefire, you have Rabin is involved in a push southward, Operation Yoav, and then Operation Choriv, Operation Yoav to, to conquer Beersheva, where a young Yitzchak Rabin met in a tent w- w- where the, the white flag was waving, Gamal Abdul Nasser, who was a young officer uh, at the Fallujah pocket, so here people who later would, would, would rise to high prominent uh, rank in their respective countries were young officers uh, negotiating a possible uh, ceasefire, which failed. Okay, and then Operation Choriv. Operation Choriv was a gutsy move on the part of Yigal Alon and Rabin to push southward to try to encircle the Gaza and dislodge Egyptian forces from the British Mandate Palestine, including those sections that were supposed to go to the Arab state. This was a very dangerous operation politically because it involved crossing the international border. Israel invaded Egypt. A little bit. Not too much. A little bit. But the British didn't like it. There was a dogfight and five British airmen were shot down and killed. And this was a, a, a very tricky and de- delicate situation for, the, for a young state of Israel to be in. Rabin favored this. He wanted to push forward, and Ben-Gurion and the political bosses forced them to withdraw, much to the chagrin of the, the Palmach. Okay, when the war is, is over, Rabin was sent to the island of Rhodes, where he was involved in the armistice negotiations with the various Arab states. And uh, at an armistice negotiation where there are United Nations officials present, you have to be dressed like a mensch, and you have to wear like a, a dress uniform. But Israel didn't have dress uniforms, so he had to borrow a tuxedo from one of the waiters. And he didn't have a tie, so someone had to give him a tie. He was uh, sabra and dressed like one. But for the occasion, he had to look like a, a, a dignified individual. Okay. When the war was over, this is where the politics gets a little bit tricky. 
Rabin was not affiliated with any political party, but the Palmach was intimately associated with the Mapam. And the Mapam was to the far left, much to the left of the Mapai. The Mapai is the main Labour Party, as Ben-Gurion's party. And Ben-Gurion was no Democrat, lowercase d. Ben-Gurion was a tyrant. And he didn't really want to tolerate much opposition. So every attempt was made to turn the wheels of state, the bureaucracy, into the bureaucracy not of Medinat Yisrael, but of the Mapai. And anyone who's from a different party, especially an extreme party, to the right or to the left, was uh, suspect enough to be ousted. So if you were a Irgun or Lehi, and you tried to affiliate with the Cheirut, you couldn't get a government job. If you were Mapam, people thought that you were a communist. And you were considered maybe a spy for the Russians, who knows what. Even if you were a hero of the war, your career in the military was going to get cut short. So many Mapam figures and Palmach figures were fired. Rabin could have found himself in that predicament. And in fact, he exacerbated the situation by going to the Palmach reunion in 1949, when he was told by his commanding officers, don't go. He went anyway. Well, as a result of that, his career kind of stalled. From the early 50s, in the early 50s, he held positions not of actual command of forces, but... Uh, a general staff position. He was sort of put away and involved in uh, training, which was important in helping to, do, to sharpen and define what the military is, but he didn't hold an actual command. And during the, uh, the, the, the well, 1953, he was sent off to England to study at Camberley for a year uh, at the military academy, which was a common thing for the young state of Israel to send its officers uh, to American or British uh, war colleges to get uh, further instruction. Especially he needed it because he had not served under the British during World War II. And Ben-Gurion favored those who had served under the British and did not favor those who served in the Palmach and had suspect political uh, allegiances. So, he's involved in, in, uh, in training, and then he becomes the commander of the North. He's the northern commander from 56 to 59, which is not a good time to be the commander in the North, because the action is in the South. The 1956 Suez campaign, Yitzhak Rabin is a non-entity. Here he's a hero of, of uh, Milchemat Atzmaut, but in Mitzah Kadesh, in the Milchemet Sinai, he's a nobody. He's in the wrong side of the country. And he, he sees that his career in the military might not uh, advance the way he wants it to. Because maybe Ben-Gurion, who functions not only as the Prime Minister, but also as the Defense Minister, has it in for him, doesn't like him. Doesn't like him. What rank does he reach? He's a, he's a low-ranking general by, 19, by 1954. 1954. So, in 1959, things change. He's appointed uh, Director of Operations, which is basically the second most important position in the Army. Why? What? Why did he get Because he deserved it. Because he was a good soldier, and because Ben-Gurion really wasn't all that against him after all. They had, a, they had a heart-to-heart in which Robin bluntly said, I thought you hated me, and, and Ben-Gurion denied it and said, no, no. Then, in 1961, he was made Deputy uh, Chief of Staff, and then finally, in 1963, he was appointed Ramatkal, Chief of Staff, to be, uh, start the job on January 1st, 1964, 
which is a three or four year term, depending upon whether it's extended. And for him, it was. So from 19, early 1964 until the end of 1967, he is the chief of staff of the IDF. That's the highest military position, yes. Okay. We get to the Six-Day War. And in some ways, Rabin may have precipitated the Six-Day War by speaking out too boldly concerning Syrian attacks on uh, settlements in the Galil and tractors that had been encroaching into the, to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, he said, well, if you do that, if you, if you fire upon our, our people, we're going to respond very heavily. And they did. In April of 1967, there were real serious dogfights between Syrian jets and, Isra- and the IAF. And Israel did a lot better than the Syrians did, let's put it that way. Um, so this led the Russians to lead to the propaganda campaign and misleading the Egyptians that there was going to be an attack against Syria, which leads to the Six-Day War. So in some ways, Rabin helped uh, put the, 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 uh, the, the wheels in motion. Uh, of just acting but not talking tough. Uh, some, okay. So the beginning of the Six-Day War, the, pre- the precursors to the Six-Day War, is the toughest time in Rabin's career as a soldier and maybe even his whole career as a public figure. When Nasser closes the Straits of Tehran and forces the United Nations peacekeepers to leave uh, the Sinai, actually he doesn't force them, they volunteer to because uh, the UN Secretary General was idiotic. But um, when that happens, Israel has Cassius Bella, has a cause for war. It's an act of war. But they don't want to go to war if they don't have to. And so the government is interested in a political solution and sends off Abba Iben to Charles de Gaulle and to Lyndon Johnson to try to arrange for some breaking of the blockade. But that takes time. And if you kill too much time, you can lose the element of surprise and the Egyptians can put more and more forces into the Sinai. But maybe even more importantly, if Israel is going to call up uh, mobilize reserves the economy is going to grind to a halt. I mean, was anybody here in the room, uh, here in Israel in, Ju- in May and June of 67? So what happened? I mean, uh, the country basically came to a standstill for a couple of weeks beforehand, right? And Robin was very nervous. He wanted some decision to be made, but the government was stalling. So on May 23rd, 1967, Robin has a meltdown, a, 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 a psychological meltdown. Yeah. They didn't know whether he had a nervous breakdown or... Yeah. Well, the public wasn't supposed to know anything. It was supposed to be kept secret. But certain figures who didn't like Yitzhak Rabin leaked information to the media and then in, in subsequent years would again uh, bring up this episode to try to destroy Rabin's political ambitions, saying that he's not up for the challenge. That when, when the call comes in at four in the morning, he's going to freak out and not know what to do. So he, the truth is he was a chain smoker who may have been drinking a little bit too much that night, and he had a 26-hour period of physical and mental difficulty. But he overcame it. Now, as he was going into his moment of difficulty, he supposedly told Azer Weitzman, you take over for now. Azer thought that meant, or claims he thought that meant, I take over indefinitely. But he meant, Robin only meant, you know, until I can get my composure. Okay. But that's only on May 23rd. 
comes Ju- June 1st, and we have another challenge. The public doesn't think that Levi Eshkol can get the job done as both defense minister and prime minister. He has a horrible radio address that, you know, it sounds like he's a doddering old fool, and people want some hero to take over. Who's the hero? Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan. But what position is he going to have? So there are three options. He could be the chief of staff, meaning, Robin, move out of the way, we're going to put Dayan back into place. Or he could be a deputy to Robin, just a commander in the field, but was he going to take orders from a guy who was his deputy a, a decade earlier? I don't know. Or, option number three, which is the one that was actually implemented, make him the defense minister, and make him Robin's boss. Now, Robin and, and uh, Dayan did not see eye to eye on all issues. Uh, there were problems in their, in that relationship. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, R- R- Dayan becomes pro- uh, defense minister, and the question is, when the war is over, who's going to get credit for this victory? On the one hand, a guy's been defense minister for ten days. What could he have accomplished? On the other, guys are the chief of staff for the last four years, and had been in significant positions in the military for the previous two decades. It was basically his military how do we decide who gets all the glory, who gets all the covered? Well, two things that matter. One is the picture. Who's in the picture? So the truth, the truth of the matter is there are three guys in the picture. There's Robin, Diane, and Uzinakis. So all three of them get a little covered there. But then, after the war is over, Chazanu al-Haratzofim, we go back to Mount Scopus, Hebrew University, goes back to Mount Scopus for a graduation ceremony after having been away for 19 years. Who gets the honorary doctorate? That's the key. Yitzchak Rabin gets the honorary doctorate, not Moshe Dayan. Who decided that? I don't know. I don't know. So, and at that speech, he, uh, Rabin lays out what is simultaneously a hawkish and dovish speech in the sense that he believes in a future of peace and accommodation with the Arabs, but peace through strength, which is important because from 1967 and onward, the question will be, how, what do you do with the territories? Assuming you're not a, a Eretz Yisrael Hashlema kind of person, the greater land of Israel type, and you believe that uh, territories conquered are going to have to be given over to other sovereign authorities at some point, or at least parts of those territories, the question is how much and under, under what conditions. So Robin develops a, a persona of being a hawk, a security hawk, but not an ideological hawk, and not someone who's addicted to land. He just believes in a firm national defense, but a firm national defense so that at a later time there can be territorial compromise. But the, the last sentence that I just told you, he doesn't tell anyone. Only the, his intimates in the inner circle know that that's how he feels. Until we're ready for territorial compromise, he's just Mr. Security, a man of defense. Uh, uh, yeah. Where's Levi Eshkol? Didn't the public image him change? Isn't he still the prime minister? So, Levi Eshkol is still the prime minister until his death in January of 1969. And people had a more favorable impression of him then. Yes, after the war, uh, his ratings went up. But then again, there was, there was no election to be had. I mean, because the election was in 
he could have gone on vacation. vacation and they wouldn't care yeah they would have been happy to giving him the ticket because <laughs> he did nothing and right. actually that's when Diane the public wanted Diane yeah wanted yeah Diane. they want yeah okay so what with the with the war over and Robin having served his his term at the the top of the army what does he do now he's 45 years old the next logical thing is either politics or make a boatload of money in the private sector but it's only 1968 so it's still too early to make a boatload of money in the private sector if this was 1988 or 98 then that would be fine but it's only 1968 and he grew up a socialist so he can't he can't envision a career of mega millions. Public service is the way to do it. But he had, a, he had in his mind's eye something that appealed to him. He wanted to be ambassador to the United States. Why? Well, he always dreamed of going to the United States. He heard good things about it. And he had been to the United States several times while as an army officer on army business with the Pentagon. Um, uh, yes. Okay. Okay. So we're gonna get to Leah. We're gonna get to Leah very shortly. So Yitzchak and Leah get married during the war, in 1948, um, and uh, they have two children. Dahlia was born in 1952, and Yuval was born in 1956, um, and they have a nice family life. Although Robin is not the most affectionate husband or father, he's kind of a gruff individual, but. They go to they go to America. The so the ambassadorship for Abba Iben was, an, was a stepping stone to a career as a, as a government minister. Uh, and in recent, more recent times, it also has been a step towards serving in the Knesset and you know, serving in the government, Michael Oren. So uh, it's, it's a good position to get, if you can get it. And Robin gets it. What is he going to do there? Well, the Americans are happy to have him in the United States, in Washington, D.C., because he's brutally honest. People like Robin's uh, direct manner of talking, which is the opposite of diplomatese. Uh, he doesn't know diplomatese. That's for Abba Iben to you know, speak in highfalutin English, in English and never really tell you anything and just talk you in circles. Ro- 68 to 73. So The Israelis are the good guys in those. Yes, yes. So he, they want to know what Robin has, has to say about the Vietnam War, the Cold War. His opinion matters. So, for example, he was asked, does the United States need another aircraft carrier? And he said, no, the Russians do. <laughs> Meaning that you, you guys are ahead. Don't worry. The Russians are behind. They need to build another aircraft carrier. Um, he develops good relations with Nixon, Kissinger, even before Nixon is in office. And he actually is rooting for, publicly rooting for Nixon, in the 68 election, despite the fact that most American Jews are rooting for Humphreys. And for that matter, in 72, the same thing happened. He was openly for Nixon when everyone else was for McGovern. He had a relationship with Nixon going back to the 1960s when, as a complete nobody, a former vice president who had lost the presidential election and lost the gubernatorial election in California, Nixon went to Israel in 1964 and Robin showed him around the country and took him on a helicopter tour of the country, just like Ariel Sharon would do for George Bush years later. So whenever you want to show the Americans how small Israel is and how we need your help, you take them up in the helicopter and in four minutes they're across the country. So... 
there was a good relationship there. Um, and what's he trying to accomplish? Get the Americans on the side of Israel in the war of attrition and to make sure that the Americans realize that Soviet involvement in Egypt and the supply of Soviet weaponry to Egypt in that war of attrition means the United States needs to come to the rescue of Israel, not the rescue, but the aid of Israel in supplying more advanced technologies that Israel can fight in the Sinai. So he's functioning in a very important capacity, more than an ambassador normally would. And in fact, Abba Iban gets very angry about the fact that he's Robin's boss. As the foreign minister, he's the boss of the various ambassadors around the world. And yet, Golda Meir, from 1969 onward, is using Robin as her personal representative, direct representative to the White House. And totally circumventing Abba Iban, making him into a, 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 a useful, no, a, a useless uh, Klugernar. Because they didn't think that Abba Iban could develop the kind of relationship with Nixon and Kissinger that, that a soldier could, and that he was too soft, and that his position on the territories was, un, was untrustworthy. Okay? So, that's Robin's uh, job. Now, religiously, this is interesting, Dennis Ross said about Yitzhak Robin, he was the most secular Jew I ever met. <laughs> Dennis Ross said that. But he, and he, didn't have a, he didn't have a bar mitzvah, Robin. He was a total uh, irreligious Jew. But in America, he started going to synagogue. Why? As is the case with many Israelis when they get to the diaspora, in order to be Jewish, you have to be Jewish. You've got to go to shul. You have to do something Jewish. You can't just rely upon the existence of Israel. And so his son, Yuval, had a bar mitzvah. Sadly, that bar mitzvah didn't help him in Zog Kaddish at the, at the burial in 1995. If you remember, he, he, he butchered the, 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 the Kaddish of al Um It's not an easy Kaddish, it's, uh, but still, you'd think that an Israeli who was fluent in Hebrew could have read it better, but he didn't. So, Rabin does something while he's in America. He gives public appearances, but he takes money for it. Why does he take money? He's a Democrat. Because, uh, <laughs> because they need the money. Israel is a poor country, and the ambassador in Washington is supposed to wine and dine the other members of the diplomatic corps in a fancy and opulent residence, except that the money isn't there for it. So he needs to bring in extra cash to pay for the lifestyle that is expected of the ambassador. So he takes money. Now the halacha was that if you were an Israeli citizen, you were not allowed to have a foreign bank account. You could, you could have one while you were abroad, but you couldn't sustain that account after your term of service was over. And they never, they never closed the account. And it was about $5,000, uh, $3,000 in one account, and $10,000 in a second account. And on multiple trips between 1973 and 1976, back to the United States, Leah Robin took money out of those accounts. Okay, so that's going to be important later. Pretend I didn't tell you that yet. Okay, yeah. By the way, was Leia religious at all? No. God, no. Yeah. But he was the one that invented that term, and I'll never forget it. Yeah. Anybody who left Israel was in a fault in Mushra. Uh-huh. Dirty yellow-bellied cow. Right. Wow. Yeah. And he, he made of anybody who left the country is it a complete disgrace yeah yes. yeah so Publicly. yeah now Robin comes back 
1973, in the summer of 73. And what's he going to do now? Politics. When's the next election? October of 73. Good. All right. So he'll, he'll join the Labor Party, which is what people do because they want to win and the Labor always wins. But then, on October 6, 1973, the Yom Kippur War. And where is Robin? He's out of the military already. He's 51 years old. He's been out of the military for five years, six years. He, he feels guilty that he's not part of the action. All the former chiefs of staff were called to the Kiryat, to the military headquarters in Tel Aviv, to offer guidance in case anyone had questions for them. But like, uh, like an old retired player at spring training, is anyone asking them questions? No. The young officers who are a half a generation below him, they're doing their thing, they're, pr- they're running the war. And he's just standing there twiddling his thumbs. So it bothered him that he couldn't make a, use, uh, a, a relevant contribution to uh, Israel's security at a time of its gravest danger, when uh, things were not looking good in the early days of the Yom Kippur War. Okay. 1973, the elections are held on December 31st, and Golda Meir wins again. The Labor, pa- the, the Labor Party wins... It's getting close. The Likud is, is, uh, is uh, on their heels, but still Labor wins with a, with a clear mandate. <coughs> Golda is Prime Minister. Moshe Dayan is the Defense Minister. Yitzhak Rabin is Minister of Labor. Now, Minister of Labor is not exactly an important position, but then again, it's his first time in the, in the Knesset. It's his first time in the Cabinet. So you don't give the guy a high-profile position the first go-around. You, you, he has to earn his way through the system, make his way up through the ranks. A month later... Boom! Resignations. The Agronaut report comes out that the leadership of the Yom Kippur War was an abysmal failure. Golda must go, retire. She dies four years later. Moshe Dayan, go down Moses. Goodbye. Okay? Persona non grata. We don't like you anymore. You were the hero seven years earlier. You're the goat now. So we need a new government. Who's going to be the prime minister? Well, the, the logical candidate was Pinchas Sapir. Who was, the, who was the long-time finance minister and the kingmaker of the Mapai. But he said, I'm old and I don't want it. So who does, who's next? Egal alone wants it. He was the Achdur Avodah the, to, to, the, to the left. But Shimon Peres wants it. He's Rafi, the Ben-Gurion's party, to the right. And Shimon Peres was seen as a hawk at that time, the most hawkish, hawkish member of the Labour Party. Everybody wants it. Abba Ibn thought about jumping in, but he held back much to his chagrin later in life that he held back, he didn't run for the prime ministership. So, the balance between Alon on the one hand, Perez on the other, Rabin is a nice compromise candidate. So Golda supports Rabin. All the other candidates drop out, it's him versus Perez, and he wins, by 290 to 250 in the, in the central committee of the party. Rabin is going to be prime minister. He hates Shimon Perez's guts. More than anyone else, he hated Shimon Perez. Why? A lot, a lot of people didn't like Shimon Peres. Okay, but they were at each other's throats for the next 20 years. And he realizes, you know what, I, I can't snub him completely. He makes him defense minister. Even though he was reluctant to do that, because Shimon Peres never served in, in a uniform. Shimon Peres was not a soldier. In 1948, at the age of 25, he was a director general of the defense ministry. He was a civilian employee. and had a long and illustrious career, but he was never a soldier. And Robin didn't like the idea of giving the defense ministry to a non-soldier, but he reluctantly did it. Okay. Now, before that central committee voted in favor of Robin, Azer Weitzman almost upset the whole thing. He hated Robin. 
because Rabin didn't, didn't want him to be the chief of staff and didn't recommend him to be his successor. Now, one of the reasons is because Azer was a, was a jerk, but the other reason was because Azer was an Air Force man, and should an Air Force person ever be the chief of, the, uh, the chief of staff? Arguably not, that you, you need an Army person, not an Air Force person. I think in the history of, of, of the IDF, only one Air Force, uh, Don Chalutz, was the head of the Air Force, became chief of staff. But other than that, you never have it. So Weitzman brought out all the dirt from May 23rd, 1967, when Rabin had his meltdown, and said, you can't trust him. So what did Rabin do to solidify his position to get the, the leadership? He got three generals who were under his command during the Six-Day War to, to sign affidavits saying that he was a great commander and was in complete control of the situation. One of the people who signed was Ariel Sharon. Sharon and Rabin had a very good relationship. You might not have thought of that because of different party affiliations over the years, but they had a very good relationship. Okay? And in fact, uh, Sharon became Rabin's military advisor, 74 to 76. All right. So he's prime minister for the next three years. What, what happens in that time? Several major accomplishments. Number one, military aid from the United States. Good old Henry came through in the clutch. All right? Henry Kissinger and Rabin, although they, were different, they, were, they had their differences, the truth of the matter is the relationship worked. And it worked to the benefit of Israel. So that even when President Ford was a little reluctant to release aid, Kissinger and Robin were able to work it out. What was Ford's job? Ford... As a congressman, he couldn't yeah. get better. Ford uh, wanted Israel to uh, relinquish significant parts of the Sinai in the uh, interim uh, agreements of 1975 without real assurances of the demilitarization of the western part of the Sinai and without any attempt to, to get from Sadat uh, a willingness to discuss actual peace terms, a uh, true peace treaty. So the, Amer- the Americans wanted withdrawals under you know, less than favorable, kind of dubious circumstances. Because they, I don't know, I don't know. That's that 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 was 1974-75. Who came up with quote occupied territory? Who labeled it as such? Uh, in October of 1967, territories occupied in the recent conflict. That's uh, the la- that's the Lashon, the language of Resolution 242. Right. Uh, nobody disputed that language. I mean, it's territories occupied in the recent conflict. So, uh, so I said the first thing was military uh, aid from the United States. The second major accomplishment was those very Sinai agreements. We're on the verge of an eventual peace treaty because Rabin was able with Sadat, well, not directly, but through intermediaries and through United States mediation, uh, to arrange for what was basically a termination of hostilities. That there wasn't going to be a war of attrition after the Yom Kippur War, as there was a war of attrition after the Six Day War, because these arrangements were made and Israel withdrew beyond the Gitla, uh, the Midi Passes to the eastern part of the Sinai. It was a success. You could argue that he gave up too much and didn't get enough in return, but it paved the way for an eventual peace treaty that he wouldn't do. It would be Menachem Begin because he'd be out of power. Now, the other major accomplishment was the raid on Entebbe. But the raid on Entebbe could have been the disaster at Entebbe. It wasn't him who did it. It was the soldiers on the ground who got it done. But because he's the prime minister, he gets to take the credit. However, who was the defense minister? Good old Shimon Peres. So who wants to take the credit? Shimon Peres. 
So they had Machlaikis over who's the hero and who's going to greet the people when they get to the tarmac. But they land in Israel, fighting over the pettiest of things between the two of them. And Perez wants to challenge uh, Rabin in the 1977 elections for Labour Party leader. Chutzpah of him. To challenge a sitting prime minister in the party? It's one thing you have to face opposition parties you know, to see who's going to win. But for a, for a sitting leader to have to face an internal primary? Chutzpah. But Perez was like that. Rabin won. He was able to dis- deflect the challenge. But it didn't matter. Because come March 1977, Leia's bank account uh, comes back uh, on the scene. Now, why is there an early election anyway? Why 19, uh, early in 77 as opposed to later in 77? Because of the, F- uh, the F-15s. So the F-15s came out of Shabbos, and the ceremony went too close to Shabbos, or even past candlelighting, and the rabbis were a little un- 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 unhappy about it, and the Mavdal threw a fit, and the, the government collapsed. Now, this is important, aside from the, the historical matter that the government collapsed, it also tells you a lot about Yitzhak Rabin, that nowhere in, uh, in his pol- in political career does religious Israel play much of a role. We're all talking about secular Ashkenazim, the military, the ambassador corps. We're not dealing with the little folks who are, you know, yarmulke-wearing, religiously observant, the Mizrahi uh, Sephardic element, that's all kind of erased in the, in the early career of Yitzhak Rabin. We're dealing with like beautiful Israel of the past, as they used to call it. Okay? And to him, oh, Shabbos, not Shabbos, what does it matter? But it mattered to, to, the, to the Mavdal, so the government fell. All right. When the bank account scandal emerges, at first it looks like Rabin was able to weather the storm because they would just have to pay a fine. But then the Attorney General released a, uh, uh, an indictment that Leah was going to have to stand trial and could potentially go to jail. So on April 8, 1977, Robin says, I, I, you know, he, can't, he can't in good conscience run for the Prime Minister if his, uh, his office if his wife is going to stand trial to go to jail. So he's going to announce his resignation, but he delayed the announcement by about two hours. And I'll give you extra triple bonus points if you know why he delayed the announcement by two hours. What happened on that date in 1977? Oh, the, uh, the, the best Correct, correct. Right. Tal Brody. Yes, we're on the map. Israel won the Euro League Championship in basketball. And because the whole crowd was celebrating and, and, and fireworks going off, it was like the Yankees won the World Series, so he delayed going on TV for a few hours so not to first the Simcha. Okay. But then he, he, he resigned. Okay. By the way, how much money is involved here? Not that much money. We're, we're not dealing with, with, with bribery or misuse of public funds. We're just dealing with a, with a violation of the law. Uh, but it was, it was legitimately their money. It's just that the account should have not been maintained in America once it was no longer lawful to do so. I guess so. I get, yeah. Yeah. Any person living in that country who had citizenship and yeah. wanted to go on vacation anywhere outside of Israel, there was a very heavy tax. Right, yeah. So peop, peop, if, if the average Chaim Yankel couldn't do it, they, they didn't want Robin to do it. Okay. So, okay. So Robin is out, Perez is in, and Perez loses. Now, it wasn't Perez's fault that they lost. I mean, there were many factors involved in why the Likud won in 1977, which we've gone through in past lectures. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't help the Labor Party that a guy, the guy at the top wasn't really well-liked. 
I mean, Shimon Peres never, until the last decade of his life, when he became like a you know old great grandpa, everybody loves. Until that, he was a detested figure in large portions of the population. Okay, so where is Rabin? He doesn't resign from the Knesset. He maintains his seat in the Knesset because he doesn't want to be totally away from from the action. He wants to hold on just in case he can make a comeback. But what happens when you're a backbencher in the legislature and you really can't accomplish much as a legislator? What do you do? You write books, you go on vacation, you do teaching in foreign colleges. You, you know, you, you, you live the good life while still holding your Knesset position and collecting government salary. So he expands his horizons between 1977 and 1981, uh, dabbling in other things and writing you know, a memoir. In 1980, he challenges Perez for the party leadership again. It's been three years since the scandal. He wants to get back in the saddle. He loses. He loses to Perez. But it's too bad for Labour because Perez goes into the 81 election against Menachem Begin and then himself loses. So Perez is a two-time loser now. Uh, no, Begin only, Likud only won by one vote, but still they won. They were able to form a narrow coalition that led to the 1982 Lebanon War. Okay. Robin uh, gets back into the thick of things in 1984. 1984, the Labour Party wins the election, but only by three seats, and can't form a government, so there's a national unity government. Shimon Peres will be Prime Minister for two years, followed by Yitzhak Shamir for two years, the ro- famous rotation agreement of 84 to 88. But it was agreed upon in that rotation that Yitzhak Rabin would be the Defense Minister for all four years. Why? Because both sides trusted him. After all, he's Mr. Security. He's not known as a super dove. He's, he's dovish on his view of eventual peace agreements, but on t- in terms of security, he's a security hawk. And even the Likud party could stomach him running the defense ministry. All right? He, his major accomplishment during that time was the withdrawal from Lebanon in 1985, that the war had dragged on horribly so, a war that he opposed from the very beginning, and thought was foolish, and, and his relationship with Sharon soured as a result of that. Um, but he was able to get him out into the security zone, the 11-mile security zone in South Lebanon, 1985. Other accomplishments were the uh, procuring of American arms. And how was this accomplished? Iran-Contra, by Israel being the go-between uh, with the Nicaraguans um, and the Iranians. Of course, Robin had to lie about that because otherwise the Americans would have had a big problem. The Reagan administration had been denying, 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 and for the, for the first time in Robin's public career, he had to tell a big lie about Israel, Israeli involvement in Iran-Contra. It, didn't, it, it was distasteful to him, but he had to do it to protect Israel. The most uh, unfortunate aspect of his term as defense minister was the Jonathan Pollard case. And the Abba Iban Commission... Uh, which criticized the handling of the Pollard case, blamed Robin. Even though Robin claims he never knew about it until after it came to public light, which I believe is true. I don't think he knew until it was exposed. Because I think it was a, some, not a rogue operation, but a lower-level operation that never reached his ears. But he was criticized. If you, The buck stops at the top. You're the defense minister. This is def- defense intelligence is coming in. You have to know what the sources are. And the, the fact that he didn't know his Pollard doesn't matter. Some say, Yesh Omrim, that... Eban was just trying to stick the knife into, uh, to Robin for their earlier 1970s uh, disputes when he was 
uh, ambassador and, and Iban was the foreign minister. So relationships over many decades are complicated. And sometimes in Avera you do in one decade, you get punished for in a later decade. All right. Robin was trusted enough by both the parties to maintain his position as defense minister in the next government from 88 to 90, when the national unity uh, w w continued. And uh, even though Likud won the election and Shamir was going to be prime minister the whole time and Perez was demoted to uh, finance minister, uh, Robin re retained his position in defense. His biggest challenge, of course, was the Intifada. The Intifada, which breaks out on December 9, 1987, and Robin was out of the country at the time. He was on a trip to the United States. And they told him, get back home now. Get back on that plane. There's a real problem here. And he poo-pooed. He said, no, not a big deal. I have to talk at a UJA, UJA breakfast, a bond breakfast, you know, uh, Temple Israel, this, that, I got to talk. Uh, uh, nothing, you know, American trip, 16 days. He, he didn't want to cut it short. But even though crisis is brewing in, the, in Gaza and the West Bank. The quote that was attributed to Yitzhak Rabin was break their bones. Break their bones. Don't shoot live bullets, because that'll kill protesters who are throwing rocks or just uh, or holding a Molotov cocktail. That Use a truncheon and bludgeon them. Break their bones. Did he ever actually say that? He denied it afterwards, but it was attributed to him. But he didn't have a solution to the Intifada, because he knew how to fight armies, and he knew how to fight terrorists. But to fight the civilian population as a whole, it was something he didn't expect. Robin did not expect a popular uprising in the West Bank and Gaza. It caught him off guard. And it changed his attitude about peace negotiations. Because Robin had believed for a long time that the West Bank could be given... Uh, in, in about 70% of the West Bank could be given to, to King Hussein and have it incorporated into Jordan. And then Israel would retain the part of the Jordan Valley, expand the Jerusalem corridor, keep East Jerusalem, and maintain about 30% of the West Bank. The famous Alone Plan of 1970. That's what Robin thought was, could happen. But he also considered the possibility of negotiating with local Palestinians in the, in the West Bank. Not the PLO. But he realized by the late 80s that he's probably going to have to negotiate with the PLO eventually. So the key is have a good relationship with the Americans and try, if at all possible, to marginalize the radical elements within the Palestinian camp so that more moderate elements could be their official representatives and through American mediation have some kind of an, uh, an agreement. But he's the defense minister. He's not the prime minister, and he's not even the foreign minister. What business does he have going to the Pentagon or to the White House or to the State Department and conducting these sorts of affairs? Well, the answer is in Israel, people do things that aren't their job, and they try to get away with it until they get caught. Shimon Peres did it all the time. Yitzhak Rabin did it too. Okay, And Rabin had a good relationship with, get this, James Baker. You would not have thought that. You would not have thought that. But Robin had a good relationship in the late 80s and the early years of the, of, of the Bush administration with James Baker. And that was important because James Baker hated Yitzhak Shamir and the right-wing government. And, and after Robin was ousted and was a narrow right-wing government from 1992, the Bush administration and the Shamir government were complete loggerheads. And if not for the fact that uh, Israel stayed out of the Gulf War and they earned a few brownie points... 
um, it would have been a disaster. But Robin was very well liked in Washington. So he runs for the Labor Party leadership in 92 against Perez. And finally, he wins. He kicks out Shimon Perez. Okay, after a few times of trying, kicks him out. And he wins the election in 92 on a promise, we're going to make peace in nine months. That's a big promise. But peace with whom? With the, the Jordanians, with the Palestinians, with the Syrians, the Lebanese, with whom? He, he didn't say. He wanted a possible peace with the, with the Syrians, and he trusted Assad to, to abide by an agreement, because on the whole, Assad had been com- compliant with the, the ceasefire of 73. There had been no real problems from 1973 up until the ni- early 90s uh, with the Syrian regime. I mean, yeah, they made a lot of problems in Lebanon, but not for Israel. Okay? But that fizzled out. For whatever reason, that didn't work out. What about with the Palestinians? So there were bilateral negotiations in Washington that were going nowhere with uh, non-PLO representatives. But Oslo is happening behind the scenes. Yossi uh, Balin, Shimon Peres, uh, Yair Hirschfeld, Ron Pundak, these non-governmental actors as well, are meeting in, in Oslo. And finally, in August of 93, Robin gives his approval to conduct high-level negotiations. September 9th, 1993, they exchanged letters, Arafat and Robin, and September 13th is the handshake on the lawn. That handshake on the lawn was something Robin didn't want to do. He would have preferred not to have it in Washington, and if it being in Washington, he would prefer not to have to shake hands with Arafat. But Clinton brought the two together forcibly. If you actually watch the video, he was cajoled into, into shaking hands. And then what does Robin do? After shaking and looking away, doesn't wipe his hand, no. He grabs Shimon Peres and says, if I had to do it, you have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so Peres shakes hands. Now, what happens over the next year, 93 to 94, running out of time, I see, is that both Arafat and Robin have to deal with their, their, their extremists. Each side wants to destroy the peace process. Hamas wants to destroy, and Islamic Jihad want to destroy the peace process, and the Israeli right, uh, extreme right, uh, the the Baruch Goldstein types want to destroy the peace process with violent action. And so Rabin has a a, a gaffe, well I wouldn't know if I want to call it a gaffe, but he made a statement that maybe he believed in, that said that the victims of terrorism were sacrifices for peace. Kabanot Shalom. So, of course, the families of the victims don't want to hear that, and I remember American Jews, especially right-wing Orthodox American Jews, didn't want to hear that and, and said it's a disgrace. And that be- began the movement towards uh, identifying Rabin as a, as a villain, as a Nazi, as, a, as, a, as Yasser Arafat in disguise, as a Moser, as a Rodef, all the dirty words, halakhic terminology and just gutter terminology that you could say was said about Yitzhak Rabin beginning in 94. But he proceeds. He keeps going with it. And Arafat was brought in from Tunis. Gaza and Jericho were given over as part of the earliest phase of the arrangement. And now the question is Oslo too. The transfer of the six major Palestinian cities in the West Bank, which are from north to south, Jenin, Nablus, Kalkilia, Tulkarim, Ramallah, and Bethlehem, but not Hebron. Hebron would have to wait till after Rabin was dead with Netanyahu in 97. So this was 
a necessary part of the uh, the, uh, pro- the the uh, peace process, but the Knesset votes simply weren't there. They had to bribe uh, one Knesset member with a Volvo in order to pass the Oslo II in, our, in, this, in late September of 95. Okay, we fast forward to the night of November 4th. We're running out of time. The peace rally in Malchei Yisrael, the Kings of Israel Square in Tel Aviv. Robin didn't want to go to that rally. He was afraid that it was not going to be well attended because he thought that the peace process was losing its momentum and its popular support and he didn't want to embarrass himself by going to an empty crowd. Okay? But he was, he was told again and again, don't worry, the people are with you, the people, they're going to show up in large numbers. And they did, like 100,000 people. So he sang, and he never sang in his life, the Shir Shal Shalom. Uh, he had a horrible singing voice, and he was always uncomfortable in front of large crowds. But he did it, and he seemed like it, in, his, in his element for the first time in a while. And he even seemed comfortable around Shimon Peres, which for him is saying something. But minutes later, he's dead. Yigal Amir shoots him, two bullets, they throw him into the, to the car, they drive to the hospital, um, and he was clinically dead on arrival, but they try to revive him a little bit, and two hours later they just announced he, he died. So, what happened in terms of uh, the assassination? We could spend a whole hour on, on the, the, the life of Yigal Amir and, and, and what led to the assassination, but al-regal achat, the Shin Bet knew that there were elements within the radical right that were thinking of, of assassinating him. And Yigal Amir's buddy, Avishai Raviv, was a Shin Bet agent, an agent provocateur. The only problem is, even to this day, we can't be certain if Avishai Raviv was an agent provocateur whose real sympathies lay with the state and the protection of the prime minister, or with actually rousing these people to do the job of shooting someone. He was, was put on trial for uh, complicity in the crime in 2003, but he was exonerated. And he's alive today. He's a private citizen, Raviv. Amir went to jail, of course. He's still in jail. He'll be there for life. So, what, I mean, what did Rabin think? Did he think his life was in jeopardy? So, in general, he tried not to think about it. He didn't believe that Jews could fire upon Jews. Now, bear in mind, at the Altalena, 45 years earlier, he did just that. But he firmly believed that his security was not threatened by a fellow Jew. That if anything, there may be an Arab in the crowd who might do, pull a stunt. But he really didn't think that the ultimate fate that befell him could possibly happen. Uh, and so he didn't take extra, extra precautions. The Shin Bet failed that night because they were, uh, his, his rear was exposed. There were only four bodyguards when there should have been six or seven some people were out of position, and also the thought was that the rally was over and the threat was over. And this is just, uh, you know, moving towards the car. But then again, as we learned from Bobby Kennedy, sometimes when the rally is over and you're moving, you know, through the kitchen or through some back alleyway, that's the exact moment when you're most in danger. Not when you're standing at the podium at the lectern in front of the thousands of people. So, sadly, he lost his life, and that led to a lot of cheshbon hanefesh among those people who, would call, who were calling him names, you know, maybe we shouldn't have spoken so harshly of him. Um, we'll stop here. Okay.